Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I am your host, Bob Sadowake. Joining me today is Gina Ortiz-Jones, a candidate for U.S. Congress from Texas 23rd Congressional District. In 2018, Gina came within 926 votes of defeating Will Hurd in Texas 23. A first-generation Filipino-American, Gina was raised by a single mother who came to the United States because she believed in the promise of a better future. After graduating from Boston University on a four-year ROTC scholarship, Gina was commissioned as an intelligence officer in the U.S. Air Force and served tours of duty in Iraq under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Gina returned home to San Antonio following her deployment to help care for her mother, who was fighting cancer. Gina has built a career in national security with a focus on defense intelligence and economic security. This includes serving as the Director for Investment at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative under President Obama. Gina knows that we need a leader standing up for the issues that can make a real impact on people's lives, and that's why she is stepping up to serve her country and her community again by running for the U.S. Congress. Gina, thanks for joining me today, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. Good to be with you, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. I would like to begin with the question of what drove you initially uh, to become interested in leadership in the political platform? Well, you know, I really uh, am, think public service is a high calling. And, um, you know, I'm a first-generation American, as, as you mentioned in your introduction. And so my story really starts over 40 years ago when my mom came to this country in search of, um, you know, the live in pursuit, rather, of the American dream. Um, like so many people, Bob, she knew from a very young age that uh, in order to live her best possible life, she would probably have to leave her home country. And for many people, that means coming to our very special country. And so, you know, she raised my younger sister and I by herself. I think there's a special place in heaven for single mothers. That place is probably open bar as it should be. Um, but uh, investments like reduced lunch and subsidized housing, those were critical investments, not handouts, but investments that allowed me to earn that four-year ROTC scholarship uh, that took me from the far west side of San Antonio to Boston University. And so I was, my sister and I were just always reminded by my mom and by my family that we were very lucky, not smart, we were lucky to be born in this very special country and we'd have to find a way to give back to a country that had given us so much. It's why I served, it's why my sister serves in the Navy to this day. Um, on top of uh, on top of my personal experiences, you know, my professional experiences, um, having served our country in and out of uniform for almost 15 years, again, in the national security space has also shown me the importance of American leadership, right? Look, nothing of consequence in this world gets done without American leadership. I firmly believe that I've seen that firsthand. Um, and so this is really about um, um, you know, doing my part to protect uh, the opportunities that allowed me to grow up healthy, get an education and serve our country, something everybody should be able to do. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I too benefited as a young child from several of those very programs myself. So I'm glad to see that we have a new generation of leaders who are now stepping up to run for office. And I want to discuss that with you for a moment, the importance of women in office and how women lead. There is only one legislature in the entire United States that has more women in their state legislature 
than men, even though the majority of the population of our country is women. Also, only 23% of the U.S. Congress is made up of women. And I recently spoke on this podcast with U.S. Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, who's been on the forefront of promoting women in politics for a very long time. And she indicated to me that more women, and specifically young women like yourself, are feeling more inspired to participate in the political arena. What are you seeing out there as you're reaching out to this new generation of voter and new generation of women who are stepping into the political arena? Absolutely. Well, you know, whenever I, it's funny when this question comes up to me, I am always surprised by the question, Bob, when folks say, you know, Gina, are you surprised that there are so many women, young women running for office? And I'm surprised that people are surprised, right? I, I don't think sure. you can, should be surprised that the people that have the most to lose, right, under continued policies that by this administration, whether you talk about young women, whether you talk about working families, whether you talk about members of the LGBTQ community, it shouldn't surprise anyone that we're seeing more folks from, from these communities and those that have intersecting um, identities within these communities is stepping up and saying, hey, you know what, I've got something to say about that. Because as we are seeing during this pandemic and as we've seen during this economic crisis, you know, we've been disproportionately impacted by these. By these. And, uh, you know, I've learned a long time ago, and I forget who said it first, I've just heard it so many times, but, you know, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu, right? So we have right. to have voices heard. I mean, look no further than just still how much a woman makes um, in comparison to her male colleague, 82 cents on the dollar. Um, and so every one of these policies from healthcare to, um, um, you know, economic equity in, in the workplace, all of these things disproportionately impact women. So I think it's, it's absolutely necessary that our voice be at the table to make sure that when we're shaping these policies, they're as inclusive um, as, uh, as they can be. I, I think, in, you know, this, this pandemic and, and economic crisis has been very difficult for teachers and for parents and for employees and for caregivers. And Bob, in particular, for the women that have worn all four hats uh, during this time. And so, you know, we're already seeing indications of, uh, as this prolonged economic crisis goes on, of, of, you know, that, again, disproportionately affecting women's decision to return to the workplace. And so we have to be thinking about, our economic recovery has to think about, you know, what are the true costs if we see a significant decrease in the number of women in the workforce? So th th that's why, you know, that's why our voices need to be at the table, because we've got to have policies um, that are focused on our, our, our uh, a strong economy as possible. And that requires as many women um, as part of the workforce that want to be. You know, you mentioned economic recovery. And I am a proponent that we can't have an economic recovery with a country full of sick people. The, the two go hand in hand. And healthcare is currently on the forefront of everyone's mind, specifically due to COVID-19. You know, we continue to set records in Texas. We have over 628,000 documented cases in the state of Texas of COVID-19 and over 12,000 deaths. It's well documented that minority communities not only suffer a greater impact, but are also generally the frontline employees who've been impacted from a, an employment perspective due to coronavirus. The U.S. healthcare is explicitly tied to your ability to be employed. And in Texas alone, we have reached double-digit unemployment rates. Over 3 million people have filed for unemployment in the state of Texas since COVID began. 
As a member of U.S. Congress, what initiatives can you set forth to ensure that the, you know, the constituency of the 23rd District and all of Texas can have access to affordable health care? You know, this is a personal issue for me, as it is for everyone. As you just mentioned, you know, health care affects everyone's every day, right? If you're not healthy sure. enough to be in the classroom, to be in the workplace, to be around your family, well, that affects um, every your economic situation, your social situation, and, and so forth. Um, and, you know, I'll never forget um, the when I came back from my Iraq deployment, I wanted to surprise mom, Bob, and she surprised me. Uh, she said that while I was di- uh, while I was deployed to Iraq, she had been diagnosed with colon cancer, had the surgery to have her removed, and had already was already undergoing chemotherapy. And I will never forget that sinking feeling in, in my stomach, and, and it was twofold. One, it was like, oh my god, I could I could lose my mom, um, and and the second one, shortly after, was, oh my god, is this going to bankrupt us? Right? Because you just hear time and time again of these awful stories where families are bankrupt through an unforeseen medical emergency through no fault of their own, right? Um, and, but, but, you know, thankfully, my mom as a public education teacher had good insurance through, through her school district, and, and that's what saved her life. Um, and I, you know, I want to make sure that working families all across this country um, have that same fighting chance. And so I want to make sure that we are protecting and expanding the ACA. Um, this look, the other side has been very clear that what would they, what do they want to do during a pandemic? They want to take away healthcare protections for people that have a pre-existing condition during a pandemic. And oh, by the way, they have no replacement in, in place, right? They have no replacement to offer. They've had 10 years to come up with something and they have nothing to offer. I just, it's beyond cruel. I mean, it's, it's equally cruel, equally incompetent. Um, I think, but you're, you're so right. This is something that needs to be a priority for us. This was, you know, by far the number one issue that folks wanted to talk with me about before the pandemic. And it is certainly the case now. Um, This is a district that runs from San Antonio, 500 miles West. It includes 29 counties. It's a district larger than 30 states. Of those 29 counties, 18 counties have three or less doctors. Three counties have no Three counties have no doctors. So we are the most uninsured state in the country. And this part of the state is one of the most medically underserved in the in, in our state. Um, and so I'm committed to, again, protecting and expanding the ACA. We have to be dedicated also to making the investments in broadband, for example. Too many communities were not able to quickly transition to online learning, which means they couldn't also transition to telehealth or telepsychiatry. You know, I've been in clinics in West Texas where they have the equipment but they don't have a strong enough, consistent enough broadband connection. So they just don't use telehealth because it doesn't make for a good patient experience. And so, look, you're not going to tell me in the richest country in the world, in a state with a $1.8 trillion economy, the second largest in the entire country, that we can't lay fiber in West Texas and make sure these communities have some type of medical service, even if they don't have a, a, a doctor resident. You're just not going to tell me that, right? Because we have the resources. Sure. Now we need now we need the leadership to, to get this done. Um, I think there are also just some very basic pragmatic steps that we can take too. You know, I get my own care through the VA um, and I can, I, I can attest to some improvements we need to make with that. Um, but look, you know, one thing they do have, right, is, you know, the VA is able to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. Medicare should be able to do the exact same thing. We can bring down the cost, which is not only good for veterans, but it's good for, for, for everyone. 
So those are the types of pragmatic things that we should be focused on. And, and look, I'll work with anyone on any side of the aisle that wants to talk about expanding healthcare to our rural communities um, and closing that, that digital divide, which also helps to, to close those, um, close the, uh, uh, or meet rather the, um, the needs in our medically underserved communities. You know, it's interesting. I did a, some preparation for this conversation with you and your district the median income in your district is roughly around $26,000, $27,000 a year of the population of your district. I pay more in health care than the median income of the population of Texas 23. So for those who are unemployed, it basically says you will not have health care. You either have a job or you don't have health care. And you're right, that should not be the case in the richest country on earth. One of the things that Texas 23 has been greatly impacted by is the global oil and gas industry. And no doubt, many people in your district have lost their jobs in the industry. Moving forward, how do we immediately address the hurdles of the energy sector? And what foreign policies do we need to implement that will provide not only our allies, but the constituents of Texas 23, a greater sense of security as a result of our energy policies. Well, you know, this is, uh, this includes, uh, the Texas 23 rather, includes much of the Permian Basin. So you're right, we are definitely, you know, at the forefront of, of this discussion. And, you know, people associate oil and natural gas with, with this district as they should. Um, Increasingly, though, we're also seeing, um, you know, the importance of renewable energy. Texas writ large, we produce uh, 25% of the country's wind energy. We're the fifth largest producer of solar in the entire country, much of that from from far west Texas. So, you know, these are places where we have natural advantages, both when it comes to infrastructure in terms of personnel. I say we we double down and we solidify our leadership position. Um, and, that's what I think is, is, is so critical uh, to making sure that we get these, we are front of the line for these good paying jobs. I think one of the things that, that we also need to be focused on is closing the gap between our urban and rural communities when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to education, when it comes to economic opportunities. And I think advanced skills training that, um, again, prepares us and, and ensures that we solidify our leadership position when it, in renewable energy sector um, helps to do just that, right? The more of those good paying jobs we have in the district, the more money that we have for our streets, our schools, and our hospitals. But again, that takes leadership, right? That takes that takes vision. I think, you know, it's, it's a good point that you mentioned in terms of how do we also think about this in the context of our foreign policy and in other countries? Well, look, we've got to compete, right? I like to compete. Let's compete. Uh, and it's important to note that 50% of all global investment right now in renewable energy is done by China. China. And you know why? Because they see the advantages, the potential advantages, if they can crack the nut on some of these technologies, they can crack the nut. You know what they get to do? They get to sell it to all the other countries. And that's why I think it's so important that we at the federal level, um, you know, and, and make sure that we are investing in the technologies, investing to prepare, prepare our young people and our communities for these economic opportunities, because we have the talent, we have the infrastructure. We just now need the, the leadership and vision to solidify these, these leadership positions. Positions. These are good paying jobs we need to bring into this part of Texas. I, I would absolutely agree with you on that. You know, your district is is a really interesting and diverse district, even though it does primarily from a 
industry perspective revolve around oil, gas, and agriculture. Uh, however, you have two cities in your district, Eagle Pass and Del Rio, that are uh, border cities that share the Texas-U.S. border with two very large metropolitan areas of Piedras Negras and Ciudad Acuna. Those cities have well over 100,000 people. And the cities of Eagle Pass and Del Rio benefit a great deal from that border relationship, and which is trade. There is daily trade that goes back and forth across to those communities. How would you promote and support specifically those communities on the international trade front? And should we be doing more to make sure that those border cities continue to prosper? Trade is so critical to our economy here in Texas. Over a million jobs in Texas rely on trade. And our largest trading partner um, is, is, is Mexico. Um, more broadly, though, I think we need leaders that, that truly understand um, that our border communities, um, they understand the social, cultural, and economic ties they have with their sister city as sources of strength. Right. When I'm in, um, in Eagle Pass, I can't have a conversation for more than two minutes be before someone mentions Piedras Negras. Same thing as you mentioned, El Rio, Ciudad Acuna, Presidio, Ojinaga, El Paso, Juarez. Again, you know, we're, we should be investing in the infrastructure that allows for greater trade, um, greater cross-border activity, um, because those communities understand that more cross-border activity means more resources, again, for their streets and their schools and their hospitals. I will never forget a conversation I had with a former Eagle Pass mayor. There are two international bridges that, that currently um, connect Eagle Pass and Piedras Negras. And he said, 46% of my city's revenue comes from those two international bridges. Right. So that man doesn't need a wall. He needs a third bridge. Right. right? That, that is that is how um, um, that again, those are social, cultural and economic sources of, of strength. And we um, really do a disservice by uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, the, the way this administration in particular has politicized the border when you'd be in the, investing in the infrastructure that strengthens those communities um, economically and in so many other ways. Let's move to. Uh, we're, we're coming up on your election on November 3rd, and we're coming up on the presidential election on November 3rd. And voting is the critical piece to an election. There are five states in the U.S. whose only process for voting is to vote by mail. And there are a majority of states that have some vote by mail system. I recently spoke with Harris County clerk down in Houston, Chris Hollins, about voting by mail. And he indicated to me there is absolutely no legitimate documented fraud as a result of vote by mail. Your district is largely rural, and it can be restrictive for some folks to even exercise their right to vote. What are you hearing from your supporters about vote by mail? And would you support a federal policy to vote by mail without cause? The um, look as a... As an Air Force veteran, as somebody who served our country in national security for almost 15 years, 
Um, you know, it is the, the bedrock of our country, of our democracy, is people having their voices heard and having faith that their ballot will be counted. We should be taking steps to ensure that every American um, can, can have their ballot, um, uh, can cast their ballot rather safely, especially during this pandemic. You know, many parts of this district, there are positivity rates that are still 15% plus. Um, so I, I think it's so unfortunate that, that we haven't um, um, taken steps to make sure that we are expanding opportunities for people to, to vote and, and vote by mail. But look, the, it's, it's important that um, regardless that people do get out and, and vote, right? And certainly vote early and vote early within the early vote period. Um, that's critical. I think, unfortunately, what, we're, what I'm starting to hear from, from voters is, is more the immediate needs related to this administration's attempts to sabotage the USPS. And so, yes, people are talking about, you know, um, you know uh, voting by mail in November. Well, let's also be very clear. You know, there are 330,000 uh, veterans that, that get their prescriptions um, every single day via via the mail. I get I get again get my own care through the VA. I got a set of prescriptions through the mail, um, and so it's not just our veterans though that are suffering in, in South and West Texas by the delays uh, due to to this administration. And yes, those folks that are um, intending to vote by mail come this fall. Um, so we've got to take all steps necessary to ensure folks can vote, can vote safely, and that people can have confidence um, in in the election. Uh, this November. Well, I know I only have just a couple of minutes left with you. I know you're extremely busy. Thank you for taking the time with me today. Is there anything before we close up that we haven't had an opportunity to discuss that you would like to express and uh, to my listeners today? Sure. Well, look, you know, we we can talk about these issues, um, but we also know only real change comes is if it when we elect new leaders. So uh, at the top, you mentioned that I came up 926 votes short. So like, I know every vote counts. I know every phone call, every text counts. So if you're interested in helping us flip this seat, which is described as the seat most likely to flip in November, we can't take anything for granted. Sign up to help us get the vote out and and make sure that we flip this seat. And again, elect the type of leaders that are going to follow fight for the issues that that matter to our communities. Gina, thank you so much for joining me today. I really, truly appreciate you taking the time and allow me to extend, on behalf of my listeners, our best wishes to you and for a victorious outcome on November 3rd. If you would like to know more about Gina and her campaign, again, you can visit GinaOrtizJones.com for more information and become a supporter. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Stay safe, stay healthy, and many blessings.